From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrano. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Susan Lindauer, former U.S. intelligence asset, is here. She is the author of Extreme Prejudice. Lindauer also revealed how the Iraqi government attempted to work with the United States prior to the war in 2003, and she claimed that Iraq was desperate to end the sanctions imposed on the nation, and therefore they not only offered to allow extensive weapons inspections, but also preferential treatment to American health care and automotive companies once trade with the country had resumed. Additionally, Lindauer said a senior Iraqi official suggested that Hussein would retire from power and free elections would be held to choose the nation's next leader. Despite all of these concessions, she contended, the United States pushed ahead with a war because it wanted companies associated with senior administration officials to profit from the conflict, and it would also allow George W. Bush to satisfy his own personal vendetta against Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Let me tell you what happens in the month of August, because there's a lot of action on the part of my team. First of all, on August 2nd, that was the date of Robert Mueller's Senate confirmation hearings. And when I released my book, Extreme Prejudice, I gave a pre-release book tour in Japan. And for the first time, I told the story about Robert Mueller's hearings. When I came home from Japan, I found a copy of the Wall Street Journal dated July 30th, 2001. And it was pinned under a rock quartz crystal paperweight on the desk right next to my computer. Somebody had been into my house and delivered that newspaper. That was what we would call in intelligence a proof of life. It was not from my house. It was from the office where I had been a consultant. And it meant that somebody had gone over to that office the week of July 30th, after my August 2nd tantrum, and they had gone into that office looking through my desk, looking for any notes that I might have jotted down, seeking any intelligence that my team had acquired on that attack regarding what would later become the 9-11 attack. But it had happened in real time at the point of my conversation with Richard Fuse. So somebody else was looking for the 9-11 attack too, which I think is very important. I hope that comes across. August 2nd was a Thursday. August 4th was a Saturday. That was the day that I went up to New York. I went up to the diplomats. I said, is there anything you've got? They said, no, we don't have anything. On August 6th, I had a meeting with my CIA handler at his office in Great Falls, Virginia, a stone's throw from the CIA. And I said, you know, the Rockies don't have anything, but what are we going to do? We have to take action. So we decided that I would do two very important things. On Tuesday, August 7th, I phoned the office of Attorney General John Ashcroft. I had been given a telephone number that was only supposed to be used in the event that I could not reach my CIA or defense intelligence handler if I had discovered evidence of a terrorist attack that must be reported immediately and I could not do it through my own channels. So as a backup, I had a telephone number that I was told 
would go straight to the Attorney General's office and that whoever was picking up the telephone would have the capability to look across the room and lay eyes on the Attorney General. That's how it was put to me. That the person you're speaking to who has this number will be able to lay eyes on the Attorney General and they have the capability to mobilize in a heartbeat if you have information about terrorism attacks. Were you encouraged to do this by Richard Fuse? Yes. Okay. And it was the first and only time that I ever used that phone number. It was only for an emergency like this. But we invoked that phone number for the 9-11 attack on August 7th, which was Tuesday. That's important. Okay, very important. And I told them, I am CIA and Defense Intelligence asset covering the Iraq and Libya at the United Nations. I also do anti-terrorism involving Yemen, Syria, Hezbollah, Egypt, and Malaysia. And I have received warnings that we are seeking any fragment of intelligence involving airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center as a known target. We expect a miniature thermonuclear device to be used and that the towers shall be destroyed entirely. Okay. We expect mass casualties. I've got to jump in here and ask okay, you something, sorry. Susan, because when you were talking originally to the Iraqi embassy and they were saying, wait a minute, the only chatter we hear leads back to Washington. Yes. So all of this information that you're getting of all of these threats... Where are they supposed to be coming from? Is this all leading back to Washington? Are you living in an echo chamber at this point? Pretty much it's an echo chamber. And in fact, I'm told that when I hung up the phone and the person I was speaking with spoke with John Ashcroft, John Ashcroft is reported to have said, oh, that's the CIA. They keep talking about this attack. Ignore it. So that was John Ashcroft's response to me. And that's been reported in the New York Times and the Washington Post that when John Ashcroft heard about it, he said, ah, don't pay any attention to it. That was my warning on August 7th. But before the person hung up the phone, when I called the Attorney General's office, that person said, Susan, they gave me a phone number at the Office of Counterterrorism at the Justice Department. They said, repeat exactly what you just told me to that person. I will tell the Attorney General, and you repeat your story to this person over here. And I said, what we're seeking is, an again, an emergency broadcast alert through all agencies seeking any fragment of intelligence involving airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center as a known target. Expect the use of a miniature thermonuclear device to be used. If there's anything you have, it needs to be reported immediately back to Attorney General John Ashcroft. So what happens is this goes out, even though Ashcroft is a dumb Blankety blank. The Office of Counterterrorism took action. They did put out an emergency broadcast alert and Colleen Rowley in Minneapolis and all of that crowd in Minneapolis responded and they fed it back when they had the Mosawi case. When Mosawi had come in from Canada into Minneapolis, they picked up on it. Now, Colleen Rowley has not immediately told everybody that it was that, that it was at the request of 
the intelligence community that the FBI should respond, but it was. And so exactly at this point, they did respond with news about Musawi, and he was the, quote, 19th hijacker who was taken into custody in Minneapolis. Okay? Right. So again, you have good guys who are trying to stop the attack and doing everything right. And then you have these dumb idiot people like John Ashcroft, (laughs) who frankly, really, another sycophant position who should never have been attorney general at all, tragic for America, who does nothing. Minneapolis requested to open Musawi's computer. They wanted to open his communications and wanted to get a FISA warrant on him. And Ashcroft, dumb idiot that he was, said no. Ashcroft refused. Well, is he being dumb or is he being told to look the other way? Is being ordered to look the other way? Yes. Yes. So you have good people who are trying to stop it. And then you have people who are doing everything in their power to make sure that nothing interrupts the attack. Yes. At a certain point, are you saying to yourself, wait a minute, you know, obviously this is a false flag or someone is going to let it happen. They know about it. Well, this was not the end of my actions. After calling the Office of Counterterrorism and the Office of Attorney General John Ashcroft, my cousin was the chief of staff to George Bush. Andrew Card. Andrew Card. He is the man who leaned down and whispered into George Bush's ear when he was reading the book to the children. On the the Billy Goat, yes. The Billy Goat. And he's reading a book to the children, and Andrew, that's my cousin who leans down and whispers in his ear. I waited in my car outside Andrew Card's house in Arlington, Virginia, for more than two hours, chain-smoking cigarettes, and I just waited for him to come home. Unfortunately, after two hours, I left. At the time, I considered that it might be the greatest mistake of my entire life, that I was going to miss him and that he was not going to hear what I had to say, but I, I did try to get a message to him, to anyone in his family, what was going on. The other thing that happens, and I've learned about this from a State Department employee who was afraid of losing his pension, whose wife worked at the NSA, and both of them were afraid of losing their pensions. But he told me that security cameras in the parking garage of the World Trade Center, I don't know which tower, but the parking garage of the World Trade Center, had picked up the arrival of strange vans at about 3 o'clock in the morning for about 10 nights in a row from about August 20th, 23rd until about September 3rd. There were strange vans seen entering the World Trade Center after the janitorial trucks had left. The guys who come in to clean the carpet and dust and do all that stuff. After they left at about 2.30, these strange vans were arriving four to five of them every night, not one, four to five of these trucks were arriving, and they were loading or unloading something at the World Trade Center. And they had never been there before, and after September 2nd or September 3rd, they never came back again. This has always been problematic for me because I certainly believe aspects of 9-11 were an inside job. Someone had to know whether they made it happen, let it happen. Certainly certain elements were glad it happened. And it's become almost a religion, this whole idea of controlled demolition and so forth. 
if that was controlled demolition, how do you wire a building that's 110 stories? I mean, the amount of cable wiring, if that's how they did it. Elevator shafts. Elevator shafts. Hmm. Elevator shafts. And I don't know how long it would take to do that. The question you've just asked is, is a worthy one. We know that there was work on the elevator shafts for a period of time for several months. Yeah, they had an asbestos problem, I believe, didn't they? Yes, yes, they did. And I don't know. I don't know the answer. I do know that it has to have been a controlled demolition, though, because of the pancake design of the collapse of the buildings. Right. In 10 seconds. This is not a bomb that explodes and breaks up a few of the girders. It came down in 10 seconds in a straight line. No, that is true. Fires in the basement continued to burn until December. And people don't realize that. The fires continue to burn at molten steel levels, rivulets of, of steel running through, like pools, puddles of molten steel and fire burning through December. All right, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll pick it up on the other side with Susan Lindauer, the author of Extreme Prejudice, right here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Susan Lindauer stays with us here on this special edition of The Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the 17th anniversary of 9-11. She's a former U.S. intelligence asset. So when those buildings went down, where were you? Did you know anyone inside? I did not know anyone inside, but the CIA could have covered up the advance warnings about 9-11, except that I told civilians who I knew about the attack and our expectations of exactly how it was going to go. I told my brother about the attack, and I also told my best friend, Park Godfrey, who would later become a university professor at York University in Toronto, Canada, a computer scientist professional. And he testified in federal court at the Southern District of New York Courthouse on Pearl Street, which is about 1,000 yards from where the World Trade Center used to stand. He testified that I told him about the 9-11 attack in the spring and summer of 2001, and that throughout the summer I told him that the attack would occur at the end of August or early September. In August, I told him the attack was imminent and that his family should stay out of New York City until after the attack was over because we were expecting mass casualties. He gave this testimony at a competency hearing for me after I was indicted on the Patriot Act. Yes, we have to get into that. silence, and we'll come to that in the next segment. But he testified in open court, very courageous thing to do to tell the truth in those circumstances. It has to have been unnerving for him. He's a very shy man, but he stood by the truth. He said, Susan knew about the World Trade Center attack. She told us about it. And he said that he told the FBI about my 9-11 warnings in 2004, in about May of 2004. So the entire time 
that the FBI was prosecuting me and harassing me and threatening me, they knew that I had told the truth about 9-11. They, they always knew. And my CIA handler told them about the 9-11 warnings. My defense intelligence handler, Paul Hoven, told them about the 9-11 warnings. And so everyone was aware that I had the capability to prove it in a court of law through independent testimony. Were you ever clear as to where the warnings were coming from? No. No, I was just told by the CIA that they were coming. All right. How did you react when Susan Rice said that we had no way of knowing that they would use planes as weapons to fly into buildings? Garbage. Ramzi Youssef had talked about this in 1994-95. They actually found a blueprint for the 9-11 attacks. Uh, he wanted to have 11 airplane attacks on famous targets including the World Trade Center, the White House, the Pentagon. And he, d he mapped this out in 1995 prior to his arrest. All right. Let's talk about your arrest under the Patriot Act. You were the first non-Arab in the United States to be charged this, under the Patriot I was, Act. I was the second non-Arab American ever indicted on the Patriot Act after Jose Padilla. Ah, okay. And I am the only American who is free on the Patriot Act because the accusations were completely garbage and I fought like I've never fought anything in my life to clear my name. You were charged with being an Iraqi spy, weren't you? An Iraqi agent. Ahmed Shalabi took his revenge on me by forging a couple of very stupid little documents. I mean, these were receipts for, you'd think they'd be like, you know, millions of dollars or something. One of the receipts was for $100. I'm not even making this up. Another receipt was for $150. And I, I was just like, this is stupefying. You've got to be kidding. You should explain How who Chalabi was. Ahmed Chalabi was a source of most of the fake pre-war intelligence claiming that Baghdad possessed weapons of mass destruction. The yellow cake story, the mobile weapons laboratories mounted on trucks that were driving around the desert so that they couldn't be tracked by the West. All of this came from Ahmed Shalabi. He was a crook. He had embezzled millions and millions of dollars from an Iraqi bank and was considered a wanted felon in Iraq. And he just destroyed the country out of sheer malicious spite. He was a truly evil, evil man. But his forgeries, let's put it this way. We used to say that Ahmed Shalabi had beautiful penmanship, but the devil was in the details. For example, the receipt that they have on from me looks exactly like my handwriting, but the diplomat's name is spelled wrong. He left the country in March, so he was not in the United States in December when he allegedly gave me $100 for train fare, which is actually not the right amount for train fare. That's not what train fare costs. Mm. And then I had emails to diplomats in Malaysia, in New York at the United Nations Security Council, which said that I could not meet in New York in that period of time at all because I had business down in Washington. So I was covered, you know, four or five different ways, and I could debunk it as a forgery. But because it was Iraq and 9-11, and because of the politics involved, once they put the indictment on me, they refused to let it go until five days before 
President Obama's inauguration. So it continued from March 2004 until January of 2009. And Obama said, I don't want anything to do with this. They refused to give me a trial. So I was locked up on Carswell Air Force Base and accused of incompetence. This was the message they wanted to send about Iraqi pre-war intelligence and 9-11 to begin with. And that was to say, don't blame Congress for this horrible mistake. Blame the intelligence community because of their incompetence. So I had to listen to these you know, talk show hosts from inside prison. Now imagine this. I am locked up inside prison watching these comedians excoriate the intelligence community, watching the Congress and the the, everybody on earth, everybody's saying, you dumb fools, what have you done? And here I am locked up in prison and I'm kept incommunicado. Well, what happened to me gets even more ugly and I've got to tell you this story. I was locked up in an ambush after my arrest in March of 2004. The Pentagon denounced DOJ immediately. They gave my boyfriend a job at the Pentagon, he was living with me, a job at the Pentagon, a top secret security clearance, and a, a salary just under six figures so that they could you know, keep food on the table while this stuff was going on. And they would send messages home saying, we're so sorry, oh my God, this is terrible, we're opposing what we, we oppose what they're doing to Susie, we know that she's innocent, we know what's happening, please tell her that we're so sorry, we don't want to participate in this at all, they're making us do this to her. So I had the Pentagon apologizing to me, but Colin Powell, who was the Secretary of State, I was free on bail on a $500,000 bail, living my life, going on with my life. And Colin Powell, on September 8, 2005, gave an interview to Barbara Walters on 2020. And he declared that he blamed the intelligence community, the mid-level folks, who failed to warn him that Ahmed Chalabi was, and all of his Iraqi exiles were falsifying evidence and testimonials on weapons of mass destruction. The problem was that it was a lie. I personally had gone to Colin Powell twice before his big speech at the United Nations. And remember how Colin Powell gave that infamous address making the case that Iraq had all these nonsense weapons and, and he none didn't, of it was he, true. He didn't even look like he believed it as he was delivering it. Obviously, he didn't believe it, but he was, you know, he had to deliver that speech. Well, they ordered him to, but then on September 8th, 2005, he decided he would get out of it. He would wash the blood and guts and dirt off his uniform and his place in history. So he said, well, no one told me that it was a lie. That was not true. I did. And I had been arrested for it. That was the one thing that I was accused of doing in my indictment, was that I had delivered a report in January of 2003. On September 8th, Colin Powell gives that, that television interview with Barbara Walters. September 17th, nine days later, the Justice Department rubber stamps an order that I am not competent to stand trial. Therefore, I am no longer allowed to have a trial that will repudiate what Colin Powell has just said and expose what a liar he really is. On September 23rd, 15 days after that interview, I am summoned into court and ambushed. 
I am told that I must surrender to prison on Carswell Air Force Base. And if I fire my attorney or if I demand a hearing to challenge the finding of incompetence, then I'm, I will forfeit my bail from this hour forward until the end of the proceedings. So other, if, so if I want to keep my bail, then I will be given 10 days to get my affairs in order, and then I must surrender to prison in 10 days on Carswell Air Force Base, where I would be held for, originally it was supposed to be four months. And I will be held for four months and then released from prison. And after the, after I've served the prison time, then I can ex- request a hearing to challenge the finding of non-competence. Okay. Then, hold on. Once I get into prison, however, they realized that their troubles, that, that it was just so, such a preposterous thing. They invented a story that I was a religious maniac, that I was, you know, this, goofy little Chiquita and they realized that as soon as I opened my mouth their their whole story of Iraq and 9-11 was going to go out the window so they decided they would try to keep me locked up and in violation of all federal laws they asked if I could be detained for up to 10 years with no right to a trial or hearing in case I was telling the truth I would not be allowed to call any witnesses to challenge the finding of incompetence, which is a direct violation of the statute. And I would be forced to be, I would be forcibly drugged, forcibly drugged with Haldol, Ativan, and Prozac, such that I would become chemically lobotomized. Who is your lawyer? I ha- oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. We called him Sam No Talkin'. His name was Sam Talkins, and 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 I, we called him Sam No Talkin. <laughs> mm. But my uncle, who was my hero in all of this, drove down to Texas from Illinois, seven hundred miles in each direction, and he didn't even want to have the phone on. He didn't want to have anybody calling him. He said he needed just to think. He wanted to drive and think how in the heck he was going to get me out of here. And so he would drive down, and the first time he drove down, they refused to let him see me. They said that there was no prison on the military base. They just said, there's no prison, there's no prison here, you're wrong, go away. And he said, well, yes, there is, my my niece is here, and, and I, I'm an attorney, and here are my legal papers, I can show my bona fides as her attorney, and here's the case, and here's the court order that she's been detained here, and yes, there's a prison here. He said, no, there isn't, go away. It's like and a gulag, said, it's like the Soviet Union. We have to take a time out, Susan, stay oh. put. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarri from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Susan Lindauer. The book is Extreme Prejudice, the second edition, now available at Amazon.com. So you're at Carswell Army Base. Uh, your uncle, who is a, a lawyer, is trying to, to, to get in to see you, and they deny that there's a prison there, even though he has a copy of the court order. It's just like the rule of law has completely gone out the window. You're being it held without a trial. Kafka-esque. Kafka-esque. And they can do this to anybody. Well, this is because of the Patriot Act, uh, and that's worth remembering, that I had been indicted on the Patriot Act. So the first time that he arrives, they say there's no prison. 
there and then he goes away and then he comes back a second time and 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 he's made sure that he's got all his paperwork in order everybody's waiting to receive him the 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 the, the front desk with the, the prison has contacted the the military and said that he's coming in and they say no there's no visiting hours there this is a prison that yes there's a prison here but there are no visiting hours on the weekend so he is not allowed to come into our military base and we don't care whether you have whether you say you have an attorney or not he says this is a constitutionally protected attorney visit with a client you must allow me into the base susan lindauer has a right to receive legal counsel and 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 we know a few attorneys, a few uh, judges, and we know a few generals, and we're going to eat you for this. The, the the military goes out; they they get their their commander, they get their they get the the staff sergeant, they get their commander. They say, "No, you're not coming on our base. We don't care what you have to say about it. You're not coming on this base. You are not going to have a meeting with Susan Lindauer." Because they think that I am an Iraqi spy or an Iraqi agent of some nefarious ridiculous stupid thing and so they're they're violently attacking my freedom meanwhile i'm sitting there waiting for my uncle to arrive and my uncle has the solution to the problem he's trying to get me to sign something to agree to something that he had he had negotiated directly with with judge mukasey for a settlement that would allow the government to say that i was quote not competent to stand trial at that point all i wanted was to get out of there and if they wanted to say I was not competent, my, my, I remember, I kept remembering what my mother said. Sticks and stones will break your bones. Words will never hurt you. If they want to say it, it doesn't make it true. Just get the heck out of there. Right. So I was like, I don't even care if they're saying I'm incompetent. Just, I will not accept drugging. To hell with, excuse me, blankety blank to that. Never in a lifetime am I going to do that. And this is what they were fighting for. They wanted to chemically lobotomize me. It was absolutely terrifying. The most evil, horrible thing that I've ever faced in my entire life. Absolutely scary beyond your, your comprehension. Uh, I'm, I'm a crunchy granola kind of gal to begin with. I eat apples and, and grapefruit and peaches and, and I don't use drugs at all. I don't drink alcohol at all. So I'm, I'm just not that kind of person who would ever do and who would who would even think that taking a drug is is acceptable? How did you get I, I out? How did it. you get out? Well, I fought like I've never fought anything in my life. But my uncle said that if I would agree, what we what we could do is we were saying that this was all politicized. So what he said is, well, Susan thinks this. Susan, we 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 could see it's politicized. Susan will agree to have a, a, an evaluation done as soon as she gets home. And then she will agree to do whatever they say in the non-politicized setting. And so immediately when I came home, I was required in two weeks, the first two weeks, to immediately undergo an evaluation. The lady said that I should be drinking chamomile tea. <laughs> chamomile tea. She said, Susan needs chamomile tea. The only thing she's suffering from is post-traumatic stress caused by her incarceration. And once she recovers from the incarceration, she's going to be just fine. But how did they, why did they let you go? Well, they fought Mukasey. 
they fought Mukasey very hard, uh, and, and fought me brutally. They kept trying to, they, they ended, I ended up, I was supposed to be detained for only four months. They detained me for 11 months, and I was released on the day that Mukasey stepped down, resigned from the bench. He retired. And I was the very last case on his docket, the very last decision that he ever made, and he wrote a brilliant decision, uh, on the, uh, forcible drugging, say, which can be used by any other defendant. That's the great thing about Mukasey. He understood, I was terrified whether he, he would comprehend that the, the political, he, you, I, I needed him to comprehend that this was a political attack, but then also to be able to structure an escape. And what the crazy psychiatrists did, was they declared that I needed to be forcibly drugged until I could be cured of saying that I was an asset and cured of saying that I'd been working in intelligence. And so Mukasey said, well, you mean to tell me that Susan is accused of having these contacts with the Iraqi government and she says she did it and you're saying that it never happened and that she's delusional for believing that she was involved in this work, but she's accused of doing it in the indictment. Right. Listen, i got to take a time. It is Kafkaesque, as you say. Let's uh, take a time out. One last segment to go with Susan Lindauer, the author of Extreme Prejudice, right here on The Conspiracy Show. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Susan Lindauer stays with us for a few moments yet. So this Judge Mukasey, was he a district court judge? Judge Mukasey was the Chief Justice of the Southern District of New York, and he would go on to become the Attorney General after the Attorney General of the United States for George Bush. I consider that he was a hero to me in all of this. He saw with eagle eyes exactly what was going on, piercing intellect, penetrating the legal morass that had trapped me, I did not know how to save myself. I was terrified at this point because realized they did not want to let me go. It wasn't just that they wanted, they wanted to forcibly drug me, which was hideous, but they wanted to do so for 10 years while I would be locked up in prison with no escape. Um, at that point, I actually began to think that Canada looked really good and that if I could get released, <laughs> I'd flee to Canada and demand a trial. <laughs> right, right. So, and I'd say, help me. Give me a trial in Canada. You so, know? so after you were released, aren't you terrified to talk about this further, to speak out? Because Lord knows, well, I mean, I, if they're I willing to drug I, you, they're willing to kill you. Well, by this time, I was pretty smashed up. They considered I was in a grave. On the day of my release from prison, I was literally the last decision by Judge Mukasey in his career as a judge. And when they delivered it to, to me, my, my attorney showed up in, at the, I was locked up at the Manhattan Correctional Center, uh, MCC, locked up on, behind bars. They had transferred me from Carswell to New York and my attorney came in and told me, Susan, you're saved. And I literally fell on the floor. I literally collapsed onto the floor. I was so scared. 
the next morning when we were taken into court, I was just exuberant and, gla- and smiling and waving to cheering Judge Bukasi. I wanted to, I was just like, I was so ecstatically happy. I was not even pretending to, to hold back. I was just like, thank you, God. You know, and, and there was only my boyfriend in the courtroom and a man stepped forward and announced that he had been the attorney for Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega and Edwin Wilson, the black angel of the CIA who'd been involved in Libya, who had served 27 years in prison in solitary confinement until he was the, the CIA finally took pity on him and revealed that, yes, he'd been doing something to do with the CIA and that he had been an asset and he'd been doing something with Qaddafi's government. It was my defense intelligence handler who had friends who were partners of Edwin Wilson on Libya. And so this is a small world, cloak and daggers, tiny little community of of real agents, spies, spook agents, human intelligence. And all of us were connected together. So this man, who's he was the attorney for Noriega and Ed Wilson, shows up at my release. And he tells me that you must never reveal to anyone that you were an asset. Just They've taken pity on you. Just sh- go out there and shut up. Don't speak. And if you don't speak, then someday they'll forget about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Someday they'll forget about you. And so um, the we had been promised that they would drop the charges, but they refused to drop the charges. So they kept the charges hanging over me for about two and a half more years after my release, refusing to go to trial, calling me up to New York, repeatedly threatening to take me into custody again, especially when John McCain was running for president. They were afraid that I'd spill the beans and blow his chances. I did insist on a comp- – when they refused to drop the charges, I insisted on a competence hearing, which I had never been allowed to have. Throughout this whole time, I'd never been allowed one hearing. Let me just stop you there because, of course, John McCain just passed away. But why did they think or how would you ruin his chances? I had been arrested 30 days after – I contacted the office of John McCain asking to testify about Iraq, successful elements of Iraqi pre-war intelligence. As the CIA and defense intelligence asset who covered the embassy for seven years, I was going to reveal the true facts, which would show that Ahmed Shalabi's lies were being uh, countered throughout the entire period with excellent quality, outstanding intelligence, in fact, uh, direct intelligence and that the intelligence community had done a superior job in maintaining these contacts at the Iraqi embassy and should be very proud of the work that they had done. And of course, that was not what George Bush wanted anybody, anybody to hear. But again, John, so you took this to John McCain's office and it was ignored. John McCain's office. No, no, I, it was not ignored. I took, I asked John McCain to testify and 30 days later, the FBI showed up with a uh, banging on my door with a warrant for my arrest on the Patriot Act. 
So 30 days after I requested to testify, I got arrested. And when I, when, uh, so in my, I, after a year and a half after my release from prison, I was given one hearing. I was allowed to have two witnesses come in, no more. One of them was a, a former congressional chief of staff who confirmed that she'd known for years my uh, that I was a CIA and defense intelligence ha- asset and that she knew my defense intelligence handler personally. She always knew he was involved in intelligence. She'd met Richard Fuse at the CIA, and she was confirming the intelligence side. And then we had Park Godfrey testify, and he gave lurid testimony about the 9-11 warnings that I had shared with him. Now, where was so Richard Fuse in all of this? Richard where? Fuse went black. He never spoke to me again. From the day of my arrest until this day, he has never spoken to me again. But but Park Godfrey testified about the 9-11 warnings. We thought the New York Times, everybody was there. AP was there. New York Times was there. Washington Post was there. And we thought somebody would pick up on that because it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And the next day, the New York Times ran a story saying that, quote, she stuck her tongue out at the judge. At the prosecutor, sorry. She stuck her tongue out at the prosecutor. She suffers nonstop hallucinations of religious mania. She believes in God and angels. I do. That's fact. I do. Um, she, she's, she's, don't listen to anything she has to say. And I was staggered by this. I fully expected that the New York Times would, would tell the truth about the 9-11 warnings and the confirmation from the chief of staff for Andrew Forbes of Long Island, New York, that I'd been an asset for years. Everybody knew this was true. Okay, it we've was got very about, easy. To- we've got about five minutes here. Let me just run some basic questions by you. So, 9-11, to what extent did they, they, we'll talk about they in a moment, did they let it happen, make it happen, we're glad it happened. Make it happen. Uh, they, they, they had to. It was like the assassination of Kennedy. At one level, they had to take away the, the protections. They had to undo the the protocols that would have stopped the attack. But then also to clear it out, they had to have the demolition. They had to. Somebody had to go into the building and lay the bombs. So it was definitely a make it happen situation. Now, who are they? We're never going to know who they are. We're never going to know who they are. And the motivation? War with Iraq, profit, greed, total naked greed. Now, I want to ask you, are you familiar with the late Philip Marshall who wrote The Big Bamboozle? Yes, yes, yes. I, um, I, I met Philip on a number of occasions, interviewed him for my television show when he, when I got the news that he supposedly had shot his two teenage children before turning the gun on myself. I was, I was shocked. I mean, uh, I had, you know, no sense, obviously, in those meetings that he would be capable of something like that. But what did you make of... I doubt he was. I doubt he was capable of that. He was um, representing uh, United, Na- United Airlines uh, pilots' families uh, in a civil suit against the Bush administration. And in this book, which really relies heavily upon the, the first 9-11 commission, um, obviously the, the, the fingers are pointed at the, 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 the Saudis here, that they were hired to do the dirty work. What are your thoughts? 
I think the Saudis were definitely hired to do the dirty work. Um, I think that they orchestrated it with Prince Bandar. In fact, there's a great guest that you should also interview uh, for your next show, which is Robert Alexander. You can get his phone number from Barbara Honiger. He says that that Prince Bandar came into his store with one of the host- with one of the hijackers. Um, and and that he puts them together, and that then he was inter- interviewed by John Brennan, and um, at the CIA, yeah, and James Clapper, John Brennan and James Clapper both separately interviewed him over nine eleven. And also, uh, according to the late Philip Marshall, these hijackers were using. Um, Simulators uh, in the United States, uh, so that they could they could learn to fly and uh, these 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 Boeings and so forth. And, and and he said there is no way that that someone would be able to walk into one of these training facilities uh, without raising suspicions. And yet they did. Obviously, they were they were using Boeing simulators. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's not believable. The whole 9-11, the official story of 9-11 really stinks to high heaven, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. It really does. But they went to extraordinary lengths to cover it up. And how do you say, what just, do you say to people that say you can't keep an operation like this secret? Well, everyone who, there, there have been so many voices coming out blowing up this, the official story that it's only surprising that so many people still believe it because they've been we've we've exposed it again and again and again that it's a lie but they still keep repeating the lie and they and people kill still keep defending the lie and we began this uh, this program you were mentioning Donald Trump president Trump is reviewing documents do you how do you hold out any yes. hope that there'll be another investigation I think that I, I would love to see an investigation. What I'd love to see is a presidential symposium where each of us who contributed those papers would be allowed, to, would be invited to speak and present our findings in front of a presidential audience, a you know, very high level audience that would be covered by C-SPAN and, you know, all of those, you know, hoity-toity ABC the New- I don't hold out for hope for the New York Times, but <laughs> no, no. But you mean if President Trump were to try to do this, is this perhaps what is behind the uh, the calls for impeachment? The fact that he wants to do no. this? No, no, no. I don't think that's what what's behind the calls for impeachment. I think it's Trump derangement syndrome that's behind the calls for impeachment. There's nothing there. It's just the Democrats are uh, foaming at the mouth over Trump. And do you think? And it's very, it's very scary to see the intelligence community and the FBI together politicize uh, this attack on the president of the United States, attacking the choice of voters. I, this is a coup, and it needs to be uh, treated as it's treason, as far as I'm concerned. Now, why? Finally, final question, Susan. Why are you allowed to, to, to speak out openly about this? Why are you not being targeted? Well, you know, it's interesting because right after my, uh, after the charges were dropped, exactly at that moment, perfect storm, Senator Patrick Leahy began pushing for the prosecution of George Bush and the cabal, the war cabal, uh, for war crimes on Iraq. And 
I took my uh, a synopsis of my story, 117 pages, to Senator Patrick Leahy. He said, this is what really happened, and I'd like to testify. And he said, oh, my goodness. They almost held hearings, but the comprom- that the, the Obama did wanted to go forward. He did not want to go back and stay fixated on the Iraqi problem in 9/11. He said we have to have a we have to move forward. It's healthy for the nation to look ahead. But what Senator Patrick Leahy, God bless him, did he insisted that I should have the right to speak on my own, and he said she's got to be able to talk. Nobody better threaten her. The people who want the answers have got to be able to find them. And so CIA, we, we formally petitioned newly, newly nominated CIA director, um, Leon Panetta, who granted me permission to speak formally. There you go. Well, and it's all in the book as well. Treason is, excuse me, treason is a matter of dates. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, they can read all about it in Extreme Prejudice. Susan, thank you so much for this. Thank you very much, and I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Well, that's it. Until next week. Thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Venzel, Ryan White. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.